Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast helping wine students and wine enthusiasts alike to learn about all the wines of the world. I'm Matthew Gorn and I'm a WCT certified educator and in this podcast I explore different wine regions and different grape varieties and also interview producers from all around the world to explore the vast world of wine. So with the Vahe Kushkarian, apologies for all my Armenian pronunciation during this uh, podcast, and I'll let you um, tell us how to um, pronounce the words correctly, uh, but you make uh, wine in Armenia, and so I'd just like you to introduce yourself before we talk about Armenia and its wines. Uh, thank you. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Vahe, Vahe Kushkarian. Uh, I'm uh, of Armenian origin and I've been living in Armenia the last 13 years, uh, but I came via Lebanon, Italy, United States, back to Italy, and then to Armenia. So it's, it's quite a moment, everywhere around 10 to 12 years. I've been in Armenia 13 years now, and I've been in the wine business for 30, as an importer in California for five years. Uh, then uh, I moved to Tuscany. I I was a merchant, then I started also making wine, then I made also wine in Puglia, then I came to Armenia many years ago, got some land, planted vineyards. So uh, I covered a few aspects of winemaking and the last 13 years I've been in Armenia and uh, mostly making Armenian wine, selling Armenian wine, producing Armenian That's what I do. So you've been pretty much everywhere, but you've settled in Armenia. Can you give a short history of Armenian wine? Because I know it goes back a very long time. Um, but just an overview of the history of Armenia and its wine. Let's see. Yes, it goes back a while. Uh, uh, Armenia, uh, maybe eight or ten years ago, there was a discovery of a cave in the wine region here, which is a couple hours from the capital. Uh, and... Uh, the, it was dated this the, the winemaking facility, and though we can call it winery, but it was kind of in a cave winemaking facility. Uh, was dated six thousand one hundred years, so it was a systematic winemaking six thousand one hundred years ago. Uh, there are other places, other countries where there there is there are residues of wine or grape that go. They might go a little bit older. But those are more accidental winemaking. It's not intentional. We don't. But this cave has bigger, a big amphora, a smaller amphora, medium size. There's racking, there's pressing, and whatnot. So that's the oldest uh, discovered winery in the world. And a few months back, and another article appeared in Science Magazine, and that dated uh, the 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 grapes as we know it for winemaking to 11,000 years. But it doesn't pinpoint Armenia, it pin it's the foothills of Mount Ararat, which is, could be Georgia, Iran, Armenia, and so on and so forth. So this part of the world as the birthplace of the wine. Yeah, so that's uh, that's the history. The Armenian rebirth or renaissance is around since 2010. That's when we left everything Soviet behind and we embarked on trying to discover what we have and what we can do with it. So, and in the last three, maybe in the last five, six, seven years, it's, it came with a vengeance. 
and and now it's really at a very fast clip. There's uh, there's improvements, new wineries, new there's some research in varieties, in investments in equipment, consulting winemakers flying back and forth. So so there's a lot of good energy happening in Armenia. So winemaking goes back six thousand years. Why is why is it only the last ten years that there's been this renaissance in Armenian good wine? Good question. Uh, let's see, somewhere, uh, I'm guessing everybody progressed, uh, except when we hit the Soviet Union. Armenia became uh, forced, I wouldn't say, to they had the choice of joining the Soviet Union. We were forced to be part of the Union. And when we did part of the Union, given that the Soviet economy was a planned economy, it wasn't market-driven, it was planned. So from Moscow, they had to plan what each nation had to produce, from shoes to cars to uh, wine and cognacs. We would handle distilled brandy. In the Soviet Union, everything was a copy, cognac. You know, it wasn't brandy, but it was cognac. It was port wine with a copy of port, Jerez with a copy of Champansky, which is a copy of Champagne, so on and so forth. We got handed down brandy or cognac and fortified wines. Every copy of European wine from Sherry to Port to Madeira to, uh, and so on and so forth. So for all those years, there was this, uh, you know, we it, it got interrupted, the winemaking. While Georgia was given winemaking, so... Georgia continued making wine un uninterrupted uh, while we moved to wine. So, and then when it became independent, Soviet Union fell apart in the early 90s, then now there was lack of capital, there was lack of research, there was not enough money for institutes, so on and so forth. So, you know, fast forward, I went there, I went to Armenia in 97 for the first time, that was seven, eight years after it had fallen apart. And then I planted vineyards in 1999. Those probably were the first vineyards to be planted in Armenia. And then in 2006, 2005, other vineyards were planted, mostly for brandy production. And then in 2009, the first uh, experiment, six barrels, I did. And then in 2010, vintage which was released in 2011, were the first modern wines. Modern, technically correct, no defects, you know, and wines that had never been in Armenia. So everyone was like, whoa, where does this come from? So that kind of, you know, started the whole uh, winemaking. Uh, and then we got, well, we got Michel Roland come for, on this project a year later. Uh, Paul Hobbs came a year after, and Paul Hobbs had been there already looking for land and whatnot, and he, they planted vineyard, and uh, 14 vintage was the first vintage, and so on and so forth. So there's, you know, all of a sudden this, you know, the Wild West kind of, you know, who's going to make wine or whatever, so there was this jockeying for the position to, to, to make the best wine in Armenia. That was the mantra. Everybody wanted that, but that's the same in everywhere in the world. They want to make the best wine in the world, you know, from Tuscany or from whatever region. 
Of course, everyone wants to make the best wine, but it's exciting that people in Armenia do want to make the best wine, which obviously was not the case previously. Um, can you just talk about the geography of Armenia, where Armenia is and um, the different wine regions? Armenia is in unusual territory. We're in the middle of east and west somehow, mostly mountainous area, mountainous country. To the east is Azerbaijan, to the west is Turkey, both non-friendly and actually with Azerbaijan a war, uh, fighting and war, and both borders are closed, so there's no traffic on either direction. Up north we have Georgia, and through Georgia we have an open border, and most of our transportation is done via Georgia, Black Sea, and then to Mediterranean, and so on and so forth. So a lot of the, the movement of merchandise is via Georgia. Uh, and to the south we have Iran, which we do have a lot of commercial activity. Unfortunately, no wine because it's not legal. So we can't use Iran to ship wine to somewhere, whatever. So as far as wine is concerned, there's not much happening there, but for other things. So within inhospitable neighborhood, it's everything is complicated. Mountain passes in the winter, it snows, it closes, the roads close. So there's a lot of these uh, you know, issues or problems, uh, all surmountable, of course, uh, that we are. So, but we are uh, high, uh, because it's mountainous, it's a high land, all of our winners are high elevation. So we start at 950 meters, which is around a little less than 3,000 feet, and we go to 1,800, which are the highest elevation vineyards, 1,800, which is around um, little less than 6,000 feet. Uh, so at these elevations, we have this high elevation farming, which is very different than sea level or lower level. Plus we have, because of Mount Ararat, and we have volcanic, for the most part, it's volcanic soil. We have rocks, rocks everywhere. It's basalt, tooth, limestone. So it's uh, uh, very conducive to making great ones. You know, then we have all of the a few hundred varieties that over millennia has has been propagated, has been cross varieties and so on and so forth. And now we probably use around 30 or 40 different varieties in small quantities, maybe three, four varieties in larger amounts. But for the most part, it is lost varieties that we are trying to restart. So that's the geography and the terroir, if you will, of Armenia. So what are the challenges of growing grapes in Armenia? We used to have a major challenge, uh, which was because it's so cold in the valley, Ararat Valley, that until maybe five, six years ago, we had to uh, put all the vines underground. Because, and then it, okay, the soil acts as insulation, then if you have minus 25 or minus 30 centigrade, you don't lose the plant, you know. So, and then in the spring, you open it up, put it back on the trellis, back and forth, back and forth, twice a year. This would be, you know, somewhere in November, put it on the ground, open. So now, partly because of cost and partly because of global warming, People are gambling and not to do that, you know, uh, especially where the cold air sits and, you know, it can be ugly. 
So if something like that happens, then you have to cut back and then let the vine grow again. You know, the root system stays because it's under soil, but you have to do that. That's um, one of the challenges used to be. It's uh, now it's becoming less important uh, for obvious reasons of global warming. The other issue we had was that because all this is we hadn't done it, we had lost the culture of wine. It's coming back, but we really had lost it. And the third is again because of the Soviet Union research of after right after during Soviet Union research was there, but right after things got fell through the cracks, so everybody was on his own. There wasn't serious research being done in varieties, in diseases, in viruses and whatnot. So now there's all of these coming together. Yeah. Uh, another major issue could be that we didn't have phylloxera during the Soviet Union. It was more controlled. Uh, and now, now it's a little bit out of control. So there are some areas where now phylloxera is coming into being. So now we have to rethink how to protect ourselves by grafting. The vines didn't used to be grafted with uh, rootstock, they were just on their own. No, until now it's ungrafted, it's all rooted, it's all rooted uh, plants. And the advantage is that if uh, you get a cold 25, minus 25 degree, then you lose the top part, but the roots stay. So just cut it and you will get from roots all the way top an Armenian Venus Vitis vinifera variety. And when you have grafted and the cold hits, now you lose the top part because the graft is above ground. And then now you have a problem that you have rootstock on the bottom. So you have to graft on it again. Or if you are putting under the soil, the graft point is very delicate. You have to be careful not to crack it. So, so, you know, that's another issue that at some point we have to deal with, you know. There's some solutions people do, you know. So, and the beauty of ungrafted, of course, is that the vineyards can last 80, 100, 120, 130 years. But the grafted vineyards normally have a lifespan of 30 years, 35 years. Then they start dying because of the graft point, I think. Otherwise, you know, they become trees. You know, so. Let's talk about the different grape varieties then. So you mentioned there are 30 to 40 grape varieties planted, though there are a lot more indigenous to Armenia. But what are the major varieties? And Areni is the one that um, most people know about, if they know about yes. Armenia. Um, roughly there were a few hundred. And now the last maybe four years, um, the institute here has been doing DNA testing. So now they have a dendrogram of around 100 varieties. The dendrogram shows how each variety is related to the other one. Some of them are the albino version, like this white RNA, which is the albino version of RNA, let's say. Then there are crosses. So this dendrogram shows all of the varieties that have been collected and analyzed and fingerprinted, DNA fingerprinted. That said, having said that, uh, we have probably around four varieties. Areni is the most popular. Khandoni uh, or Sireni was the second biggest po uh, popular, but that was in an enclave that we lost. So now that variety we have to 
figure out how to find somewhere in Armenia where it's hospitable, it's good, that it has a good opportunity to grow. And then we have Gachet, which is a more uh, structured tannic variety, Gachet. Uh, we have Tozot, which means dusty. We have Garmir Goat. Uh, you know, we have a few these are these varieties that now are with replanting them so that we can have enough quantity to be able to reasonably have quantities and experiment with those. We have many more whites. Uh, whites also because of the cognac production, a lot of the whites were preserved. They kept the whites much more. Uh, Voskehad is the lead variety. It's a compact grape, good acidity, good structure, lends itself very well for barrel fermentation and stainless steel fermentation. Uh, and then we have Gilar is another variety, like a Grunel Wettner kind of thing, a little bit. If, you know, we have to find something to compare, let's say, uh, that would be uh, one. We have up north, we have a variety called Lalvari. Uh, that's a cute variety. Uh, we have White Areni. We have Kharji, we have Khatun Kharji. So these are all varieties. Unfortunately, most of them are really have difficult names. Sometimes we use synonyms because it's okay. It's a, so Khandoni, which has a kh and a r. Uh, we use Sireni, which is the synonym. You know, well, not everyone uses it, but for the export, if we want reasonable, we, you know, uh, it's, it's normal and it's legal to find a synonym that people, yeah, like Primitivo and Zinfandel, they're the same grade, but, you know, so Zinfandel became more, a little bit more popular and so on and so forth. So these are the varieties and there are many others, but we do micro-vinify, not all varieties are spectacular, some of them are kind of watery, like boring kind of thing, but, or, or uh, some varieties were planted in the vineyards uh, let's say 80% of RNA, then you have movus and whatever, because they had big bunches, you know, to give volume, like Canaiolo in Tuscany, you know, Beauty Sangiovese, but, or they also put uh, uh, Malvasia Bianca, they used to put white in it, just to add, because it, you know, all of a sudden, with a small plot, you can have a lot of grapes that, you know, you can increase your production volume, let's say. So there's a bunch of varieties, all of them <laughs> difficult to, to pronounce. Can you talk specifically about Arani? Arani is a relatively, uh, it's, it can be thick skin or thin skin, depending on the production, whether the berries are big or small, depending if it's irrigated or not irrigated, let's put it that way. Uh, but need, none of them are tannin. There's no tannin in it. They're not tannic wines, unlike similar to Pinot Noir, if you will, or not the flavor profile, but the structure, perhaps, the mouthfeel. But it has a good peppery character, like black pepper, you know, it's very typical of it. It's an ovular variety, more like an egg, kind of ovular, it's not a perfect round. It makes wine with good structure and fruitiness. Of course, if it's un or very irrigated, we have to irrigate in Armenia, because with just very well-drained soil, 
there's not much clay, so you know, without irrigation, it's almost impossible to to, to do viticulture. So depending on that, if it's smaller berry or whatnot, you get more extraction, more color. But usually, it's a paler color. We make, for example, I make a sparkling wine, which is from high elevation vineyard from the same variety. It's a blonde noir, and it lends itself wonderfully to that, also to beautiful rosé. It gives it this salmon-colored, salmon-onion skin, like Provence kind of thing. Not the pink rosé, you know, more that, you know, orange, peach, uh, salmon color. And, um, you know, so far results, uh, it, it lends itself to aging. Again, you know, similar to Pinot Noir aging, let's say, not a big monster. Uh, they're not monster wines. And it appeals to, uh, you know, people who like more elegance than power. You know, so that's other thing in general. Now, over time, now we're doing clonal selections uh, from different we don't, the clones have no names because there has not, never been anybody. So we're doing, we're adding names because it came from a vineyard somewhere where we brought the cutting. So then we, we give it either the rose name or the village name or the plot name, you know. So you know, that's how we can differentiate. My wife used to work for Paul Hobbs and she worked with the international brands. And so she worked with Yakubian Hobbs and helped, helped release those wines in the USA. Can you talk a bit about that project? Let's see, Yakubian Hobbs, I know it intimately because I, my winery is an incubator winery. So I do make wine for a few people. And when they planted vineyards, uh, they didn't immediately invest in the winery, so they used my services, so they would bring their grapes from the vineyard to the winery, and we worked very closely with Paul Hope, Paul Hopes, with Paul to make sure, because he has a certain style of wine, so so we execute what is put in front of us, because she has a specific, we, before harvest, everything is measured, before we get the grapes in, uh, maturity level, acidity level, and so on and so forth, uh, mostly phenolic maturity. And so those wines uh, are, we've been making, I think, six years now, I think six, six, seven years. And they all tend to be elegant. They have one Sarpina, which is a reserve, and they're aged in French barrels, and it is really beautiful, spectacular wine. The white is a blend of three or four varieties, I think. And so it gives it a little bit more uh, harmonious bouquet. It's one of the best whites in Armenia. It's considered, at least in restaurants, uh, some, some of the most elegant whites. Uh, with, there's no barrel-aged white. And then there's the classic Arini, which is all about cherry, this uh, pure fruit approach uh, wines. They're really, they're really lovely wines. Yeah, yeah he's a great winemaker, uh, we have a great time with him, yeah. so we learn, of course, from him also. So is there a, a lot of international investment in Armenia to help advance the industry? There are, for the most part, uh, there's three types of investors, locals, diaspora Armenians, and non-Armenians. Uh, 
Um, Non-Armenians, we have only one from Switzerland, one investor from Switzerland, as a Swiss guy. And locals, we have quite a bit, and we have quite a bit of diaspora Armenians. The initial ones that came and, let's say, kick-started were diaspora Armenians, because the you know, there wasn't much happening locally. So people who came from the outside, maybe new Paul Hobbs, like uh, Yakubian. Uh, me, I had been in Tuscany, in Puglia, so I came back. There's another fellow who came from Milan, and he, he, he brought perhaps an Italian winemaker, and Italian know-how. So, so there's a lot of those were then. And now, it's also, there's uh, quite a lot of the local, uh, local, winery owners or brand owners are now also getting French winemakers and whatnot. Or then we formed the Yerevan Wine Academy and now that churns around 18 to 20 students a year. It's a one and a half year program, teach from biology, chemistry, viticulture, to vineyard management, to marketing and so on and so forth. So it's it's now it's getting a little bit more more international, if you will. Some of the winemakers are, again, Antonini, uh, Paul Hobbs, uh, Michel Roland, are non-Armenian, you know, and then more you know, kind of world-class winemakers. Yeah. And so I read that the population of Armenia is 3 million, but worldwide the diaspora is 8 million. So there's lots of Armenians around the world. How important is the diaspora for the export market and selling Armenian wine? Uh, this is a tough one. I don't know how to put it delicately. Uh, it is a very important diaspora. It's an important factor. They are our best ambassadors, let's put it that way, brand ambassadors, if you will. But until lately, they weren't the biggest wine consumers. So they weren't. There are, of course, sophisticated drinkers that are collectors and whatnot. But there's also a whole mass of people that don't, because especially Armenians that went from here, or the ones that went from Lebanon. For example, in Lebanon, uh, people drank Arak or whiskey. Uh, but, you know, wine was an occasion thing. That's how I grew up. You know, twice a year, bottle of wine, you know. But Arak, Every grill, every mesa, or whatever, arak, arak, arak. So, and these are all went to different countries, and so they didn't pick up the wine cultures. So, for us, it's an important market, but it's not like we count on it. We don't count on it, you know. But mostly, we aim at uh, a niche of consumers that are looking. They're out to looking. They're adventurous types. Sommeliers that are uh, they're fine with putting uh, Armenian wine by the glass on their wine list and so So those are for now our best target market, if you will, where, you know, it's the, 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 the one who is exp wants to find something new, wants to discover something new. But in the meantime, of course, the Armenian, the Armenian wine drinking society is changing also. Armenia adopted it very fast. But most restaurants now, with the serve, they use Riedel or they use Spiegelau as glasses, which is amazing. Coming from nothing 10 years ago to now every restaurant pretty much having fine, 
find stemware decanters and whatnot is quite impressive. So, you know, short answer is yes, it's important, but it's not critical for the... Uh, we don't count on those 8 million. It would be a fallacy to say, oh, if each Armenian bought one bottle of wine a year, now, you know, we don't have enough wine. Yeah, that is true if you do similar analogies for China, you know, if you think one bottle of wine per once every three years, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. And how much Armenian wine is made? What is the production? Uh, somewhere around, not much, honestly. It's around 15 million bottles and it's growing. So it's not really a big... We have a lot of vineyards, uh, but most of the vineyards are for brandy production, cognac production. So maybe around 15, 12 to 15% max is the, the amount of grapes used for wine. 85% or 90% is used for distillation. Slowly changing because the grape distillation grape prices are depressed while wine grape prices are higher. So people are sometimes replanting for wine. As the, de as the demand grows, so is the supply is catching up. Tell me about your sparkling wine. Uh, I make a sparkling wine called Kirsch. Uh, my name is Kirsch Gadian, so it's the first five letters of my last name. It's a project, it's the first time that I'm putting my name on any wine that I made. You know, in Italy, I never use, I use the name of the state as the brand. And that's the one uh, I did because I just want, I love, I love champagne, I love sparkling wine, and the country didn't have a sparkling wine, so I decided to make. And it's, it's kind of a family legacy that I wanted to leave it to my children. I started in 2013, and from the get-go, we had we knew there was it. We had a winner uh, from tastings, from people, uh, from having served the wines in markets and restaurants, whatnot. We knew that there was a potential. Uh, things changed a little bit when I went to a village called Khachi, which has the highest elevation vineyards in Armenia, at around 1,000. The village is 1,800 meters. The vineyards are 1,750. 50, a little bit lower, and that's around 5,800 feet, which is very high elevation, some of the highest in the Northern Hemisphere. So I went there with the belief that they didn't, sugars didn't rise too high, and you had good acidity for the grapes. And truth be told, you know, we harvest first week in October, but we have a very low pH, beautiful acidity, but we also have phenolic maturity. So pretty much all of our bubbles now, the last two years, we do it brut nature. We don't do dosage. So we don't need to add sweetness uh, so that uh, we balance the acidity, which like champagne would, they have to do it. We, otherwise it would be too austere uh, to do brut nature or brut zero, zero with, uh, let's say, less ripe grapes. But because of the high elevation, we get maturity. So we're able to do padose, uh, brut zero, brut nature, but without it to be austere. It is beautifully fruit, it's nice and balanced. So now I've been, since 2014, I've been buying exclusively all the grapes of that village. I work with them, they all know me, we all know them, 
and uh, you know we work and they have some of the oldest wines there 100 120 year old wines there's also some newer winners newer from the 60s from soviet era uh, still old but not as old yeah so that's what i i do that's from the Khachik village i make a few wines i make a rosé i make a classic origins uh, that's a blend of three varieties and then i make a blonde noir uh, ultra, Kirsch Ultra, London one is from the Khajiv, from those vineyards, and uh, it's a more touch gold, grey colors, uh, more under, I don't do too much bubbles, but there's enough of course, but not, not like, you know, incredible, so to keep it elegant, to give it a little bit uh, freshness with the sparkling, and that's what I do with Kirsch. It's a, uh, it is, it got a lot of traction, you know, uh, in different magazines. It was top 10 wines in Bloomberg this year, uh, you know, you know 10, 10 wines of the world from DRC at $23,000 a bottle. Ours was a modest $35, $35 a bottle, and it was the discovery of the year. This for Bloomberg. But in general, we have the same reception in in restaurants, sommeliers, you know, in Chicago I was five days ago, and one restaurant is pouring it by the glass, you know, the Peshulfa. And are other people making sparkling wine? Are they following your example? Is this something that could be a thing in Nami? Uh, there are some others are doing. Uh, there, are, uh, there are a few producers that do they don't do, they don't do method traditional or method classic, not the classic method. Uh, they do more the Charmat method, there's two or three, the, there's one producer who is doing pet nut, so basically it doesn't discourage, you know, keeps it easy, simple, but you, know, you go with the sediment with it. Uh, there are now, there's one other producer who's doing method traditional, but very small amounts, and there's one new project now, maybe in a couple of years there'll be another classic method, you know. Um, you know, for wine took off very fast in Armenia, but sparkling didn't take as fast. But now it looks like there's momentum being, you know, from the sales growth, we can tell. Even though Russian, Russian market, they drink incredible amounts of sparkling wine. It's a, it was a big movement during, I think, post-Stalin or Stalin, where we had to do sparkling wine, there was a plan so that they showed the world that the common Russian can drink champagne and eat caviar and that kind of, it was a whole thing and um, and it stuck with them. So now they think, of course, the cheap versions and all of their wineries in Russia produce millions and millions of bottles, you know, the brands that they have sparkling wine a lot. Armenia didn't catch on that fast, but Slowly, it's coming. And so what do you see the future of, of, of Armenian wine over the next 10 to 15 years? Look, um, uh, here is how I look at it. I basically, I, I look at it, I say, if we are able to do these wines, that now we are exporting, we're not ashamed of them, people are picking them up, they're putting on wine lists and whatnot, and we are doing these wines 
using leftover vineyards from the Soviet Union. Now I'm saying, oh, let's look at it this way. What will happen in the next 5, 10, 15 years when now most of the grapes will come from selected clones on the right land, planted the right way, uh, mono-varietal, not like a mosaic vineyard with every every kind of variety is mixed, which is what used to happen in Soviet times. So I'm saying if the wines we have now are good, then we will go to very good. If our one of the wines we are making now is very good, we're going to go to great wines. You know, so over time, that is the trajectory of the wines that we will start seeing. And I'm hoping we will hit a few world-class wines along the way, you know. Uh, per perhaps we'll be able to identify villages, parcels, vineyards. We don't have any of it now because we haven't made wine from this parcel and done it a few years running to be able to say, ah, the soil here is incredibly schist, it is this, it is that, you know, like we do, like we have in Burgundy, let's say, you know, it's Morache, the next row is Chevalier Morache, you know, then Chassin Morache. But that's a few hundred years of experimenting, and everyone agreed uh, that, you know, when you hit this one, everyone can walk on their knees to go to those vineyards, you know, we don't have that yet. So it's all a work in progress, but. Uh, it, it will happen, our children will do it, uh, you know. It's, I mean, the, the direction is right, uh, but we're having fun along the way. So that will happen. I think we'll make some great points in the next decade. Well, fantastic. And I look forward to tasting more and more Armenian wine. It's going to get better and better because I've enjoyed the Armenian wines that I've tried. It's exciting when it's such an old wine-producing country and yet everything is quite new, so it's very dynamic and advancing forward. You know, there's uh, the release of the movies, uh, the Song 4. Song 4 is all about Armenia. It's all about Paul Hobbs is in it, I am in it, my daughter's in it. It's a great movie. Because there's also a foray, I go to Iran. There's uh, some interesting stuff that uh, you will see the movie in the theater. Thank you for sharing. Very nice to meet you, and thank you for your time.